from the Bird Park, USA. I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. So glad to see you and me back in stride again. Our phone number 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. All of our socials can be found at KBLA 1580. That's Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Everything at KBLA 1580. Let me also invite you to download our app right now. My chair is dropping here. Uh, can you believe this? I'm live on radio. And my chair is just going down. <laughs> it's not a good sign when you start the show and your chair just starts losing air and starts dropping on you. Uh, for those watching on live stream, I'm sorry if you saw me jump up real fast. Uh, anyway, I was saying, <laughs> let me invite you to download our app by going to KBLA 1580. Download the app and take us with you anywhere in the world and listen to us in real time. But only by downloading our app right now at KBLA 1580. Should you miss us any day in real time, check out the podcast of our program by going to the app, the website, Anchor, Spotify, Apple, so many places uh, to get the podcast of this program and listen at your leisure should you miss us any day in real time. But I am delighted to have you along live with us today for the next three hours. You can also watch the live stream of this program by tapping on the KBLA TV icon on our app or by going to our YouTube channel. Let me also invite you to follow me on Facebook and Instagram at The Real Tavis Smiley and get Twitter updates at Tavis Smiley. Another great show on tap for you today in our second hour, a Black History Month conversation with Brandeis University professor Chad Williams about how the scholar W.E.B. Du Bois might process this particular American moment. Dr. Williams is chair of the African American Studies Department at Brandeis and author of a forthcoming book about Dr. Du Bois. I look forward to that conversation today in Hour 2. Our third hour remains the domain of the motivator, Les Brown, and his master class, You've Got to Be Hungry, his Black History Month radio residency exclusively uh, on KBLA Talk 1580 continues today. Today's theme is How to Find Peace in the Midst of the Storm. How to Find Peace in the Midst of the Storm. Uh, so don't miss that master class taught again today in our third hour by the motivator, Les Brown, you've got to be hungry. But in this first hour today, let's talk politics on this President's Day with Democratic strategist and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, Basil Smichael. Basil, how are you today, sir? I'm well, sir. How are you? Man, if I complained, I'd be an ingrate. Glad to have you on. Glad for this hour. A lot to talk about. Let me start with this. Um, this, of course, made uh, big news over the weekend. Uh, after a series of hospital stays, former U.S. President Jimmy Carter decided to spend, announced, in fact, he was going to spend the remaining time he has on Earth at home with his family and receive hospice care instead of additional medical intervention. Uh, former President Jimmy Carter is now 98, and you uh, again heard over the weekend, no doubt, that he has decided to leave the hospital and go home. And whatever uh, time he has left, uh, he wants to spend it at home with his family. Not unlike many Americans who find themselves in a situation where there's nothing else that the doctors can do for you, you just want to go home. Um, anybody who's ever been through that with a loved one understands that. And President Carter is now, we are told, at home in Plains, Georgia. Um, let me start with that, Basil. I've had the honor uh, in my career uh, a few decades now of interviewing most of our presidents. Uh, and uh, I was just uh, checking again over the weekend uh, my numbers. I felt pretty confident about it. Uh, but I've been honored to interview Jimmy Carter more than any other president. Bill Clinton comes in second on my list, and Barack Obama comes in third. So I've had a chance to interview, again, most most of the presidents during my broadcast career. But Jimmy Carter 
has called me more times than any other former president um, to sit for conversations. He's written so many books, of course, over the course of his career uh, since leaving mm-hmm. the White House and received so many honors. But Jimmy Carter, uh, thankfully, and, uh, and I'm grateful for it, always had me on his list, uh, persons he wanted to sit with whenever he was doing something that he wanted to talk to the public about. So I thank President Carter uh, for all those conversations. And when that time comes, uh, we will play uh, some of those clips, I'm certain, of my many conversations with Jimmy Carter. Um, so that's my love for the for the man. Uh, he's a nice, uh, a wonderful person, a great humanist, and just on a personal level was always kind to me as a black media personality to sit with me as he did with all the mm-hmm. good white folk. So thank you again, mm-hmm. uh, President Carter, for that. Your thoughts, though, on this news that Jimmy Carter is is now home resting, and it's just a matter of time at this point. Yeah, I, you know, it's sobering, obviously, for many of the reasons that you uh, indicated. He gave so much of himself to um, to the American people throughout his life of service, and I actually would want to highlight that point that if there is a if there is anyone who is a beacon of um, hope and the um, I, I don't know the the value of being a public servant, um, it is it is Jimmy Carter. I mean, the man literally. Uh, built homes for people in his post-presidential mm-hmm. life, and uh, um, you know, in, in, in amidst all of the you know challenges we see today or we're experiencing today uh, with people in public service, their lives being threatened. You know, one of the things I always talk about is how um, the, the the virtue of the work that we do to try to improve people's lives. And I think he did not get as much credit um, as president or for his presidency for the work that he did and his view of uh, bring, or his attempt to bring the nation together and keep us from uh, engaging elsewhere in the world until we got our own house in order. Yeah. Um, uh, but he uh, but he certainly exemplified that in his post-presidency life. And it really became a model for presidents uh, after him to follow, quite mm-hmm. frankly. No question about it. Um, two things in that regard. I, I once asked uh, President Carter, one of our many conversations, again, uh, when that moment comes, I'm sure we'll find this clip somewhere. But I once asked him, <laughs> I, was, I, was, <laughs> I was a little scared to ask this question, Bass, when it came out of my mouth, I said, maybe I shouldn't have said that. Uh-huh. Uh, but he's sitting right he's, he's, he's sitting right in front of me. Where, you know, we're, we're, our noses are almost touching me. I said, close around in, this small, in this small studio. And I said, President Carter, let me, let me ask you this, sir. Um, how would you respond to people who say that they think that you are the best ex-president we've ever had. <laughs> and I was talking, of course, about all the work that you just mentioned, Basil, that he did after he left the White House. I mean, he, his, his claim to fame is more for his work since our uh, post-presidency than, than during his presidency by many scholars' uh, assessments. His, his, his one-term presidency wasn't the best. Uh, his claim to fame, again, is really all the days and all the work he did after leaving the White House. So I, I had the nerve to ask him whether or not he thought he was the best ex-president, and he kindly and Sweetly, and only as Jimmy Carter could do, put his foot up my behind. But he did. <laughs> but he did. He, he did it very, very nicely. Uh, we'll get to that perhaps in the days to come. Uh, but you said something a moment ago that I want to uh, give you a chance to unpack for me, right quick. And I noticed, and and, and people very rarely, when, when when it happens on this program, Basil, which is almost never, it's so rare that when it happens, it jumps out at me. And you've done it not once, but twice by my account. Actually, three times by my account already. I'll pull the tape and double check my number, but I think I'm right about this. Um, I asked you a question about Jimmy Carter, and you went to this notion of public service, and you used the word, you used the term public servant, and you did that three times already. You referred to Jimmy Carter and this notion of public uh, service or being a public servant three times already in this conversation. Why does that jump at me? Because I make a distinction between politicians 
and public servants. They're not the same thing. There are politicians mm. and there are public servants. So whenever anybody uh, says to me on this radio program uh, something about public uh, service or being a public servant, it just it, it, it jumps out at me because, again, we talk about politicians all the time. But there's a distinct difference. Uh, tell me <clears throat> tell me why that phrase uh, public service, public servant is so important to you and why you make that distinction. Yeah, no, I think, you know, one of the things I tell my students, I've, you know, I teach the public policy program at Hunter College here in City University of New York. And, you know, one of the things that I talk to my students about um, is this notion of um, uh, of what it is to be sort of a, a political elite. And why I, I specifically say that people who are elected or appointed to office, mm-hmm. they are officials who have a very specific role of executing the rules and regulations about how gov- as to how government works, right? Mm-hmm. People who are who are formally in the role of executing government processes, uh, but there are a lot of other and, and in some ways those are individuals who are public servants as well because they're there to um, sp- supposedly they're there for uh, the public good or the betterment of, of of a jurisdiction or constituency. But I think that you could live a life of public service without ever being elected or appointed. Mm-hmm. Um, you could, you could be in your community volunteering your time, um, to feed people, to build homes, as we talked about Jimmy Carter doing. We could, you know, all of the ways in which I just, even in my youth, uh, volunteered at youth, at youth programs, at drug programs, uh, to just talk to people about their lives and give them hopefully an example of how they can live differently. Um, that to me is in service to the public. It's how do you recognize, do you recognize the problems that exist in your community? What are you doing to actually try to solve those problems that is centered around the people who are most affected, those stakeholders? So that's how I, yeah. I kind of view public service. And, and the, the, the sad part about today is that you know, as I was touching on earlier, you know, when we think about even the threats to people in the public eye or that engage in public life, mm-hmm. um, even the poll workers who are generally not paid <laughs> to go mm-hmm. in and, you know, and just make sure that the polling site is open, that the voting booths work, uh, the voting machines work. I mean, even the lives of those individuals are threatened. Um, so it's been it's difficult to get people, particularly those who are cynical, to say I'm going to give my time and expertise and even ex- expose myself and my family yeah. um, to do this work. Yep. It's President's Day, uh, and uh, many of you are off, and for those who are off, hope you enjoy your day off. But uh, whether you're on or off, thank you for listening to KBLA Talk with Janity today on this President's Day. And uh, as we have already established, Jimmy Carter was indeed, uh, I think, a fine example of what it means uh, to be a public servant while he was engaged uh, in his public life. But if I know him, and after so many interviews and spending time with him, I think I know him rather well, somewhat well. I can hear him saying now, Tavis, I ain't dead yet. Hold up now. I, I, I ain't dead yet. So we will hold off on the tributes to President Carter until that moment comes. But because it's President's Day and given the announcement he made over the weekend uh, about going home uh, for his final uh, days, uh, it made sense, I think, to start our program there today. But there is so much other political news to talk about. When we come forward, I'm going to come back, first of all, to this notion of of, uh, of political elites uh, that Basil Smichael raises a moment ago. Uh, there's something there I want to interrogate about the notion of political elites today. And then we'll jump into a number of other issues that uh, have made news politically over the weekend. President Biden made a sneak visit uh, to Ukraine. We'll talk about that. Uh, Some new poll numbers uh, about uh, Donald Trump and Joe Biden. 
um, should they face off. Uh, so a great deal more to talk about in this first hour. You're listening to Basil Smichael Jr. and Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. Conversations that matter. matter. You're listening to Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk 1580. You are listening to Tavis Smiley and Basil Smichael Jr., uh, Democratic strategist, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. Uh, pleased to have him uh, on with us today. Also a professor these days at Hunter College uh, in New York City. And uh, we're talking all things politics in this first hour on President's Day. No better time to talk politics, it seems to me, uh, than President's Day. Of course, we do that regularly around here, but there's a lot of stuff to get into in this first hour today. Uh, let me come back, uh, Basil to the comment you made a moment ago before we jump uh, uh, more into these um, uh, trending political topics uh, today. Uh, this notion of the political elite, again, phrases that you don't often hear uh, around here. We talked earlier about what it means to be a, a true public servant uh, versus being just a politician. Uh, and now we're talking about the political elite. Um, these days, um, how would you uh, regard or not regard, as it were, the political elite who are supposed to be leading this country? It's a, it's a broad question, and I'm, and I'm asking it broadly, deliberately. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think, the, I, you know, I look at political elites, uh, I, just, I, I think about them in two ways. Well, for two reasons. One, um, to me, political elites are, in many ways, are people who are paid to do, to make decisions on our behalf. So they, you know, they, they could be elected, they could be appointed, but because of the kind of system that we have, you know, we don't go into... Not, more often than not, we don't go into the local town hall and vote on every, you know, where the, the citizenry goes in and votes on every law uh, that comes before that comes before the community. So we pay these folks to be able to make these decisions on our behalf, and we hope that they are making decisions on our behalf, free from most well, free from influence, um, thinking that they're going to do what's right. We are, we know that that's virtually impossible to do without influence, right? But. They are they are people who are paid to to do this work. Number one and number two, many of them also get to set the agenda. What I mean by that is they get to set the public agenda. What are we talking about? Uh, what is the what is the general public talking about on a given day? You see a lot of people on the Sunday talk shows, right, talking about the news of the week. But what they also do is talking about issues that they want the rest of the country to be talking about for the coming week, right? Mm-hmm. So these are people who who set the the the, the political legislative agenda. Um, they're the ones that, you know, if we're talking about gun control one week because of a mass shooting at Michigan State, why are we not talking about that two or three weeks down the road? Mm-hmm. Something else has filled that filled that spot, right? And why is that? Who's controlling that? So I always look at that. And sort of think about those political leaders who are helping um, sort of move those conversations one way or another. Mm-hmm. Um, one one inside baseball question: um, Since you talk about the, the fact that many of these political elites are in fact paid, um, in that group mm-hmm. of persons who are paid the best, uh, as you well know, would be lobbyists. <laughs> they uh, uh-huh. they're, they're paid the best. And just a quick question: I don't want to get too deep into this again. It's inside inside sure, baseball yeah. politics, but I'm wondering whether or not you think that we are getting any better, or whether we're getting worse about the influence of um, lobbyists on legislation. And I ask that because uh, it seems to me that the way our system is designed, on paper at least, uh, everyday people, voters, the demos, should have the most agency in this process. But you and I both Mm -hmm. know that we do not, everyday people, have the most agency in this process. And since we're talking about political elites, at least for the moment, I'm wondering Mm -hmm. what you think of how they factor into this conversation about 
political elites, lobbyists. Yeah, yeah, you know, so I was a lobbyist for like a second about mm-hmm. 10 years ago, and yeah. I, I didn't like it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't like it. Um, that, you know, it does, it can pay very well, but I also didn't, you know, sometimes you're asked to take on things that you don't necessarily care that deeply about or don't, that don't necessarily impact the communities that you care about in ways that are, uh, that you think they'll benefit. And so th- that, that gets really tricky. Yeah. And so I, in addition to the lobbyists, I also, um, I also, uh, understand that there are sort of other independent expenditures and nonprofits that pop up all the time that are pushing legislation. And that's the thing that you, that I think we all have to collectively be mindful of. Who are the groups that are recommending judges to the members of the Senate, right, for for appointment? Mm-hmm. Who are the folks that are representing the big pharmaceuticals that are talking you know, that are not supportive of reducing drug prices? If you remember, Joe Biden had to make a very specific point of that in his State of the Union, saying big pharma will be okay even if we start reducing drug prices in this very specific category. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's always this there's this mindfulness around. The fact that there are really important lobbies in this country that are that are that produce uh, the kinds of results that benefit, you know, in, important interests, and they do make a tremendous amount of money. Oftentimes, we do not know who they are, um, even if some of them have to register. There's a lot of work that happens behind the scenes where people aren't registering to be lobbyists, and uh, we also have to really follow how leaders get the language for legislation that they're passing. There are organizations that literally write language for elected officials to go promote in legislation. All of these pieces um, are really important to sort of how we how we get the policies that we that we are, we experience. Yeah, um, I don't think it's going to change anytime soon, no matter how many sort of guidelines and, mm-hmm. um, and and restrictions we try to put on their behavior. Yep, there's always talk about reform in that regard, but it never seems to uh, never seems to stick. I, I digress on that uh, right. for the moment. Uh, it is President's Day once again. Let's talk presidential politics. Uh, so the biggest news, uh-huh. uh, speaking of our current president, is that uh, earlier today, uh, Monday. Uh, our president, Joe Biden, slipped into Kiev uh, for the first time since Russia launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine almost one year ago, uh, demonstrating, uh, the president did, uh, in dramatic personal fashion as he's walking through the town square uh, with Russian President Zelensky, uh, his commitment to that country and its struggle as the war enters Basel, uh, uh, a new and uncertain phase. And when I say a new and uncertain phase, I'm talking now about a few things in no particular order. Number one, it's almost been a year, as I said. That's the first thing. It's It's been a year already. Uh, secondly, uh, we're talking billions and billions of dollars that the U.S. has already committed uh, to Ukraine, uh, given this war they are engaged with, uh, uh, engaged in with Russia, number two. Uh, number three, China, uh, we are told, is now considering giving weapons, um, selling weapons to Russia. That would be a game changer. Uh, if China gets involved in this, I've already said many times on this program that we're already in a proxy war with Russia as it is. We're not in a fight with Russia, but Joe Biden's dramatic uh, uh, trip, uh, uh, secret trip, uh, uh, unannounced trip uh, to Ukraine, uh, again, underscores um, the stakes here and how he sees this issue that he made a personal trip there earlier today. So we're already in a proxy war with Russia as I see it. Now China is thinking about getting involved in this and giving some weapons to Russia. So the U.S. would be on the side of Ukraine. 
China on the side of Russia, all fighting a proxy war, as it were. And, um, and speaking of new developments, uh, there are now uh, an increasing number of voices on the Hill, uh, Republicans uh, and some Democrats. And you can t- take that any way you want to take it. The fact that Democrats are raising their voices now about this open checkbook that we seem to be um, uh, continuing to write checks out of for Ukraine. Democrats are raising questions now about that. And Republicans who've always been pro-military, are now raising questions about that. So you got folk now in both parties. It has not reached as yet a critical mass, Basil, as you know, but there are persons now in both parties who are starting to raise questions on the Hill, talking about politicians, not members of Congress, who are raising issues about this open checkbook, the fact that it's been a year, the fact that that China is now rumbling, all the things I just said, uh, put this situation uh, in Ukraine uh, in, um, it, it, it gives us a new way to look at it. As I said, we're, we're entering a new phase, and my sense is how you read all of that. Yeah, so I think there are two, there are two really important takeaways from this. The first is a sort of raw, it relates to raw electoral politics, because the other thing that's, been, that's being discussed uh, over the last few days is uh, you're, you're hearing a lot of grumblings about Democrats thinking that Biden's too old to run for re-election. Yeah, we'll, we'll, so, we'll, you know, we'll come to that, I promise. We'll come to that later, I promise. Uh, later. No, but, yeah. but the thing is, you know, when you travel to it, when you do something like this, it's it's the, one of the most presidential things that a president could do, right? Mm-hmm. Go, you know, go to another country, drop into a war zone, and look and sound presidential. So I think part of this trip was mm-hmm. aimed at, you know, showing that sort of sign of strength as the president of the United States to the world, but but now he's needing to to sort of engage this audience at home mm-hmm. um, that is skeptical about his ability to sort of lead and his physical abilities, if you will. Remember, uh, you know, some may have heard Nikki Haley in her pre- announcement to run for uh, president from the GOP, even call Biden's mental acuity into question, mm-hmm. um, if not directly, indirectly. So all of this, I think, is you know, does have that one sort of political effect to show signs of strength. On the other hand, hold, hold, that, Basil, Basil, hold, that, hold, hold that second thought. I wanted the second thought. You said there were two. There were two things you think that uh, this points up. The first is uh, optics uh, that Biden looks presidential, and indeed he does. I'm looking at pictures right now. Uh, as we're live on the air, the president walking through um, uh, the square uh, in uh, in Kiev uh, with uh, Ukraine, Ukrainian President Zelensky, and he looks cool. He's got his aviators on as usual, and uh, looking strong and robust, and walking uh, there and and appearing again presidential and strong. So I, I get your point about the optics. Let's get Basil's second point and uh, a great deal more when we come forward as we talk politics in this first hour of Tavis Smiley on KBLA Talk fifteen eighty. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. I'm Tavis Smiley. Our guest in this hour is Dr. Basil Smichael Jr., uh, former Democratic strategist and former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, uh, now professor at Hunter College in New York, talking politics in this first hour, given that today is President's Day. And in case you've just tuned in uh, and haven't seen the news, our president, Joe Biden, made a surprise visit earlier today to Ukraine. Uh, we are on the eve of the one-year anniversary of this uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine. Billions of dollars of U.S. money, uh, your money, my money, taxpayer money, uh, has been sent uh, to aid and abet Ukraine in this war. Uh, China is making rumblings now about getting involved and uh, providing uh, 
Russia with weapons. So uh, that would set up quite a showdown. The U.S. supporting Ukraine, China supporting Russia. Uh, it's about to get funky uh, in the, in this war in Ukraine. And so we're trying to figure out where we're headed and what it means that President Biden uh, popped into Ukraine today in a surprise, unannounced visit. Basil Smichael was saying earlier there are two things uh, that he's taking away from this surprise visit. The first is the optics. President Biden on the eve, perhaps, of announcing that he is, in fact, going to run for re-election, given uh, uh, the way he came at that State of the Union address. Um, we're all expecting that announcement to come not too far uh, into the distant future. So the optics of him looking strong and going to Ukraine and looking presidential, all the stuff that we, you know, uh, that we know um, comes out of visits like these is reason number one uh, that uh, Basil unpacked for us. And the second thing, Basil, that you're taking away from this visit is what? Well, it's a lot of it's a lot of what you were saying earlier about um, wanting to make a case to the American people and to the Democratic and Republican leaders in Congress that um, they need to keep the faucet open, um, you know, to 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 be able to send more money to fight this war. You kept, you use the term proxy war, and it, and it is, mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that, um, you know, this is not just a, this is not a fight in Ukraine that the, that the United States is being supportive of in terms of Ukrainian people. This is also a fight against Russia. Um, it's a fight against China. It's, um, you know, when you have concern, when you have American people and particularly the Republican Party saying, that he looks weak um, in terms of the economic and military uh, uh, challenges that um, other countries are, are sending us, like you know the balloons. <laughs> mm -hmm. And they were questioning he didn't he didn't go after the balloons with a quickness. This is to reassure the American people, but also send a signal to Democrats, Republicans in the, in the leadership, and to the rest of the world that the, the United States is still in charge. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. from his perspective. Yeah. And that the the country's still a leader in this fight, and that we need to keep supporting the Ukraine. Since it's President's Day, um, let me circle back to where we began this conversation, Basil Smichael, talking about the announcement over the weekend uh, uh, by President Jimmy Carter that he was going home. Former President Jimmy Carter, mm -hmm. he was going home to spend whatever remaining days he has left with his family and friends. He is now ninety-eight. He's in hospice care right now. Uh, at his uh, longtime home uh, in Plains, Georgia. One of the things that Jimmy Carter was proudest of and so said to me in um, in any number of our conversations um, over the years that during his administration, not one American bullet was ever shot. He right. never put boots on the ground in any country. Now, he's only president for one term, not two terms. Who knows what might have happened in the second term. But during his presidency, he's really, really proud of that, that he never put boots on the ground anywhere in the world and not a single American bullet was shot anywhere in any country on the globe. Uh, most presidents can't say that. Uh, Jimmy Carter can say it and he's proud to have said it uh, more than once again to me in our various conversations. I, I circle back yeah. to that because it seems to me that since Jimmy Carter, we have not had a president who was even remotely <laughs> inclined to boast in that way about not engaging U.S. military personnel in any conflict anywhere on the globe. So I'm raising it to ask you to square Carter's view of the use of military force uh, and being proud that he didn't have to do so with every president since him that doesn't even have that on their list of things that they want to brag about when they leave office. 
Well, I'll give you, uh, I'll tell you this really interesting um, encounter I had with a student just the other day. Now, mind you, this is an undergraduate student whose first vote was for Joe Biden. Mm -hmm. I was talking to him about Barack Obama and asked him to talk, you know, think about Barack Obama's legacy. And one of them called him a war criminal. I said, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, of all the things that I've heard good and bad about Barack Obama, I've never heard him described as a war criminal but but the point that i'm making is that you know when you when young people are particularly sensitive to this and that when we look at every president since um carter one of the things that's also occurred since his presidency is that I, i i feel that young people have had so much more information at their disposal to learn more about what's happening around the world in real time. Mm-hmm. Um, because since Carter, with the Reagan presidency, starting was in 1981, the creation of CNN, you know, and 24-hour news, cable news, and so on. So young people have this ability to have so much information at their fingertips and are therefore better able to analyze what America is doing in the world. And I think what, what that does is it makes current presidents so much more sensitive to how they they behave internationally and the causes that they that they choose to fight for that said it doesn't stop the united states from doing so yeah um we are a country that loves to show its um its uh military power um we love to show our strength through military i mean the 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 defense budget uh, at the federal level is more than housing, health care, and education combined. Mm-hmm. And it has been through Democratic and Republican administrations. Um, but, you know, it, it, the, this, is, this is the challenge that every president has, has had. Do we go abroad and sp- spend money across the world? Do we invest it locally? Now, one, just a very quick point. The reason that's one of the reasons so many presidents since Carter has, has, has done that is because Reagan was very successful in making Carter look weak for not mm, doing it. Exactly. Not going abroad. That's right. And I don't think any other president really wants to have that moniker. Um, but it has. But but engaging in that way certainly has um, terrible consequences for for the U.S. and the yeah. rest of the world. For, for any of you who may have been shocked <laughs> with the story that Basil Smichael Jr. just told, uh, or are trying to figure out why anyone would call Barack Obama a war criminal, let me unpack that. It's a it's a it's a it's an interesting point, uh, and, and 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 an arresting point, and a powerful point, frankly, to hear one of his undergraduate students, his first vote. You heard Basil say was for Joe Biden. So you just got here, basically. You still wet behind the ears. What nerve do you have <laughs> to call Barack Obama a war criminal? Well, let, well, let's unpack that for a second, because that student ain't the first or only person on the globe to call Barack Obama a war criminal. And here's some of the thinking. I ain't gonna waste our time. Not waste our time. I won't spend our time talking about it. But for those who are curious as to why he would call him a war criminal. Let me give you some of the some of the backstory. We know that George Bush has been called a war criminal for any number of reasons. In the Barack Obama case, these are the facts. Just two right quick. Barack Obama allowed his military, the U.S. military, to go into another sovereign nation to kill someone uh, who we had an offense against. Talking now about Osama bin Laden. We invaded Pakistan. We went into a country that didn't know we were coming. We, we invaded another country to go kill somebody that we were chasing. Can you imagine some other country under the cover of darkness coming into our borders to kill someone 
without our knowledge, without our cooperation. They just broke up in here in the middle of the night, some random country looking for somebody to kill somebody, to assassinate somebody. That's what we did in Pakistan. Without their support, without their knowledge, without their involvement, that's what we did. And that's why people would call him a war criminal. It gets better than that. Barack Obama, during his eight-year presidency, killed more innocent women and children with drones than any president in the history of this republic. More innocent women and children were killed with drones during the Obama presidency than any president in the history of this republic. Now, you can love Barack Obama, you can loathe him, you can like him, you can hate him. That's not my point. My point is just to unpack why somebody in Basil Michael Jr.'s class at Hunter College would call Barack Obama a war criminal. There's a great debate to be had. I had a debate about this at Oxford University, one of the great honors of my life, invited to debate at the Oxford University about a question similar to this, and I remember it well some years ago. Uh, but that, that conversation is not a conversation we have inside our country very often, uh, but it's a conversation around the world, as Basil knows, that others have. But I wanted to unpack that right quick for those who may have been wondering why would anybody call Barack Obama a war criminal. Those are just two reasons. The list is longer than that. Basil, you want to add any quick comment to that before I move on? i got to move here. <laughs> I would, no, I'll just say very quickly that you're absolutely right, that there are a lot of young people today who are really who think very deeply about the America's role in the world and even if we you know as much as we may laud our you know former presidents or current president whoever you know whether you mm -hmm. like them or dislike them sure. there is a there is a record that they have to contend with and they've got to square it with young voters who we're asking to go out and vote that's right, right? and that's that's a big challenge yep and, and and it's why it was all the more difficult to watch Barack Obama try to thread the needle <laughs> While folk were calling him a war criminal and he's receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. I remind you that the same Nobel Peace Prize that Barack Obama received is the one that Dr. King received. But that's threading the needle when people are calling you a war criminal and you're receiving the Nobel Peace Prize. I digress more with Basil Michael Jr. when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. Basil Michael Jr., I was just laughing to myself during <laughs> during that break because uh, it's President's <laughs> Day and, and and it wasn't planned this way, but our conversation has taken us in such different directions that on President's Day, we have mentioned the names of Reagan, Bush, Obama, Clinton, <laughs> uh, uh, Jimmy Carter. Uh, and, and now we're, we're, we're about to talk about, we mentioned Biden already. We'll talk more expressly about Biden. And Trump yeah. is about to come up in this conversation right now. So here we are in President's Day mentioning the names of, you know, about eight or ten presidents. Um, and again, the conversation just went, it, it goes where it goes, right? It's organic. It's dynamic. I ain't got no playlist of uh, questions I need to ask you. Uh, and you're just uh, rolling with the conversation. But we are on President's Day. Um, having a conversation that seems to be bringing up the names of all kinds of presidents. Um, so uh, it is what it is. Uh, speaking of the current president, we mentioned earlier that he made a surprise visit to Ukraine in case you just tuned in. And uh, Bowser and I had some comments about that. Uh, now I want to talk about uh, uh, President Biden vis-a-vis uh, -vis what may or may not be in 2024. So there are all kinds of polls, and they keep coming out every other day, uh, as, as you well know, Basil. You teach this stuff at Hunter College uh, in New York. But these polls keep coming out every other day. And as I read these polls, and I don't want to get into the various polls right now, but the point I want to make uh, uh, and get your take on is a broader point, which is that the polls seem to be searching for a clear-cut answer to this question. All these polls are trying to get at this question, and that is ultimately whether or not Joe Biden or Donald Trump have the support 
of their respective parties. If I were to, if I were just going to give you a, a headline for all these polls and what they're trying to get at, that's my headline that they're trying to assess yeah. whether or not either of these gentlemen have the respective have the uh, the support rather of their respective parties. If you agree with me on that, tell me um, you do or don't, and tell me where you think uh, this is headed and what we're going to find out ultimately about that prevailing question. Yeah, no, I do agree with you. I, I, I think on on the Democratic side, the Democrats are trying to figure out, you know, is there an alternative to Joe Biden that we can that that we can coalesce around? Um, but that raises two really important questions. Number one, who is that person? Mm-hmm. Can you get and can you get consensus around that person? And then two, can you get Joe Biden out of the race? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that, that I don't know that that actually happened. Yeah. So uh, concerned as some may be, I think Joe Biden is who the Democrats are going to roll with in 2024. On the Republican side, you know, the Republicans looked at 2022 in the midterms and realized how much Trump is sort of a stone hanging around their neck. The problem is that they don't know what to do with his base. Um, He has a base that is fervently for for him, will unlikely vote for any other candidate. And even Ron DeSantis, who's pitching himself as an alternative to Donald Trump, you know, know, if he has other uh, opponents in the primary, like a Nikki Haley, uh, Tim Scott, and and maybe others that get into this race, it just more, makes it more and more likely that should Donald Trump get in, he becomes the he becomes the GOP nominee. So they're trying to on the Republican side, they're trying to figure out if they if there is a life beyond Donald Trump and how do they start that life sooner rather than later. Yep. Well, as we know, Donald Trump's already in, uh, and now it's a matter of others jumping in with him. Uh, when we come forward in our remaining moments, I want to ask you specifically about Nikki Haley. You've raised her name a couple of times. Um, and to my mind, there are other Republicans who may run better races, uh, may be more successful than she. So she won't be the only one, of course, who declares uh, that she's running. But the question is whether or not, given that she is a woman, number one, and number two, given that she's a woman who used to work for him, how you see that political calculus. Uh, we'll talk about that uh, with Basil Michael Jr. When we come forward in our remaining moments with him, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Right now. Our remaining moments now with Basil Michael Jr., uh, Democratic strategist, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party. Uh, and now professor at Hunter College in New York. Um, so, Basil, you raised the name of Nikki Haley um, a couple of times today, and um, she uh, would love to be on this list of presidents or former presidents <laughs> as we celebrate uh, President's Day. Uh, but she's certainly trying to get to the White House, and it seems to me that she, um, in a uniquely different way from others who may get in this race on the GOP side, um, presents a challenge to Donald Trump, given uh, the obvious that she is a woman and the other obvious that she once worked for Donald Trump. So I don't need to call it much more than that. You teach this stuff every day. Mm. How do you how, how mm. do you see her uh, particular candidacy vis-a-vis Donald Trump's? Well, she certainly had a moment several years ago, you know, presided over was governor when the uh, Confederate flag was taken down from the Capitol in her state. She was viewed as a rising star within the GOP. But, you know, having uh first chided and uh confronted Donald Trump on his positions and then going to work for him and being a supporter. I wonder now what's her lane. You know, when I think about, you know, from a strategic standpoint, what's her lane? Mm-hmm. She's not she can't be the anti Donald Trump. Um I think Donald Trump sort of needs her to be in the race 
uh, especially if DeSantis is there, to be better positioned to win. So Donald Trump needs her in some ways. Uh, but I don't really see her lane. She, in some ways, she's tacking a little more to the right. You know, she went to say that we don't say gay law in Florida didn't go far enough. So if she's tacking to the right, my question is, why would not why would a voter want someone who's moving right versus someone who's already there? Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know to what extent she could convince voters that she is authentically the person she's presenting herself to be today. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, I think she comes in third, even in a primary in her state. So um, behind Bush, behind, um, I'm sorry, Trump and DeSantis. So yep. um, I just don't see that. I don't see the lane that she has to, to, to be someone like a Donald Trump. So might, might this be a play, a ploy um, for her to be uh, selected as number two on somebody's ticket? Somebody asked, selected as number two, or the, you know, at least put her name out there so that maybe four years from now, if, if uh, Joe Biden wins, she can run again um, without Trump's name being as, as prominent as it is right now. Yeah. Um, and finally here, um, all the indicators are uh, that Joe Biden uh, is uh, in the not too distant future, given the timeline he imposed on himself. Uh, going to let us know whether or not he is uh, going to run for re-election. Uh, if I were betting today, uh, again, based on the signs, uh, he's all in um, for my money. Uh, and yet yeah. every poll, every study, every survey I see still tells me that the majority of Democrats in his party don't want him to be the standard bearer. So what's your what's your bet on what actually happens in a few weeks? I think he announces for president. I think that the Democrats are going to... Um, you know, they're going to have their concerns. There'll be some rumblings. But, you know, he, unless they decide they want to push him out um, and nominate somebody else, and that could be Kamala Harris. I doubt it, though, um, because she probably has the worst poll numbers than he does. Mm-hmm. Um, that the person that Democrats are going to have to get behind and vote with in 2024. So I expect that I expect that announcement to come. And he's going to do everything he can to coalesce the support. In 15 seconds, how would you bet whether or not he gets primaried? I I think he will have a primary, but I don't know that the person is going to be substantial. You know, it'll probably just be a nominal primary so that he can be pulled to the left a little bit. Got it. Basil Smarco, Jr., Democratic strategist, former executive director of the New York State Democratic Party, now professor at Hunter College. Uh, Basil, good to to talk to you. Thanks for your insights, man. Uh, All the best to you, my friend. Same. Thank you. Thank you. Hour 2 of Tabby Smiley, afternoons, traffic and sports on K Talk 1580.